I just came two days ago back home from here, actually, after co-teaching um, a one-week retreat on mindfulness, wise speech, and nonviolent communication, <clears throat> in which we focused for a whole week on combining silent practice with interactive speech practice and really developed a whole set of different kinds of um, principles and practices to help guide speech so that it can be more readily an important part of our practice. And I was inspired to bring some of that material here and I'll check with you at the end of the, the morning to see whether you'd like to continue. I'm hoping that you will, uh, because I haven't taught on speech to my knowledge here for quite a few years, even though it's been an important um, interest for, for quite a long time. So um, today I want to give a kind of introduction to speech practice and talk First, about the importance of speech practice, and secondly, to really ground in some of the traditional teachings, and to give a, and, and then to give a sense of how the, of how the practice of speech can be um, unpacked and and differentiated into a number of different ways that we practice. So today, I want to give a kind of an introduction, and. First, first talk about why speech practice is so um, important. You know, and by speech practice, we can really understand by that quite a few different elements. We can understand our immediate speech. My, um, my speech with another or in a group, and within a, a workplace and so forth. And that can involve the way I speak but it also can involve the way I listen, my capability for listening to another, and the, the, the very language use I use. When speech becomes a practice, there can be the possibility of acting, as it were, more outwardly, and still tracking internally for what's going on within oneself. In other words, it's possible although it's not a beginning capability, to be able to have inner and outer attention at the same time. Not easy. In other words, to be at that family reunion that we were talking about and to be tracking what's going on inside in the midst of interaction. That's a, that's a capability that's possible to train for and develop, which uh, changes things because then our, we can really start connecting more the, our mindfulness practice, our wisdom practice, with our action in the world, with our interaction with others. Speech practice also involves, I think, listening how we speak to ourselves. That counts. <laughs> because if you haven't noticed, we talk to ourselves a lot. I'm always reminded in saying that of what uh, Gil Fransdell once said, that if we had someone 
other than ourselves running around whispering in our ears what we say to ourselves about ourselves, we might consider that person to be one of the most obnoxious people on the planet. <laughs> um, so it also includes the way we speak to ourselves. And I think also when we think about speech practice, I think it also goes out more to the larger culture and how, what, is the, what are some of the cultural forms of speech? Um, how much wise speech is there more broadly in the culture? Do our leaders employ wise speech? And so forth. What about the media in its relation to wise speech? And so forth. So I think this is kind of the larger horizon that we might consider. And I think we can see that uh, probably just from some very brief reflections that speech has the power to lead to a lot of suffering. Unwise speech can lead to so much suffering. You know that um, probably if we would study the history of conflicts and wars, we would find that often violence was catalyzed simply by unwise speech. There's a a cartoon that I have from the uh, New Yorker, which kind of in a simple way shows this capability of unwise speech leading to bad things. There's a woman sitting on a sofa talking to a police officer who's taking notes. There seems to be like a detective or someone behind, behind her on the couch. And then you can kind of see behind the couch there are some shoes connected with some legs protruding, apparently a body lying on the floor behind the couch. The woman's words to the officer, he misspoke, I misheard, then shots rang out. (laughs) (laughs) And kind of metaphorical, right? We don't necessarily have the bodies with the shoes protruding behind the couch, but we have hurt feelings or frayed relationships and so forth, you know, if not something worse. So um, unwise use of language, unwise speech can create tremendous uh, suffering. And it also has the potential to create warmth and healing. Wise use of language, language maybe from the heart, we know that if we are perhaps in a difficult state, feeling whatever, fearful or um, having just had difficult experiences, a wise word or sometimes even just wise, wise and caring listening can totally change things. You know, that just a few wise words, often just to show that the person has heard me, can be so powerful and healing. So language has this capability. In a sense, we might say it's neutral, but that the unwise use of language has potential for great harm 
And the wise use of language has the possibility of really of healing, of connection, of engendering uh, inspiration, and many wonderful other qualities. So why speech is, is valuable in that context, I think it's also valuable in a few other ways for us leading the kind of lives that most of us lead here that is involved typically with work and family and um, friendships and connections and participation in the larger society. Um, maybe more than for monks and nuns who are the original um, audience, as it were, for the, for the Buddha, for us, speech is pervasive in our lives. You know, I like to say sometimes that many of us complain about not enough time for our spiritual practice. You know, we might be, consider ourselves lucky to have half an hour. If you turn your speech into practice, many of us have up to 10 hours a day for practice. So it's actually quite powerful to have one's speech be an active way to cultivate the most important qualities of our lives, to cultivate clarity, or to cultivate warmth, or to cultivate mindfulness. And so um, that's an interesting perspective, isn't it? You know, that, and I invite you, even as you listen, to, oh, I'll say more what speech practice might be in the context of listening in a, in a moment like now, but just maybe ask yourself, what, what, might, what might that mean for you to have this be practice? It might mean if your mind goes away, to bring it back, right? To listen carefully and so forth. And maybe to really notice anything that um, touches you or that, and notice any internal <coughs> movement. And so, um, another way of saying that is that if our sense of practice, again, I'm using practice to mean the deliberate cultivation of qualities like mindfulness, care, wisdom, and so forth, if that practice is going to really um, be expressed fully in our, in our lives, given that most of us talk a fair amount of the day, especially if we have work and so forth, we have to have an alive speech practice if our practice is going to be alive as a whole, right? So it really has this central place. And yet, we don't often have a very clear sense of what speech practice means. What does it mean for me to have my speech practice alive? That's what I'd like to explore, in the, in hopefully, in these next few weeks. That we, we have, actually, from the classical tradition, rather minimal resources. Interestingly, even though in the teachings of the Buddha, what's translated as right speech, usually, is one of the factors on the Eightfold Path, which, which I always think is remarkable. We often think of the ancient monks and nuns mostly being silent, but he was saying right then, 2,600 years ago, you need attention to your speech and how it's um, 
uh, being expressed, even among um, monks and nuns. You know, that's very interesting. And you find when you look at some of the old texts that they actually were talking a fair amount. And that speech was quite important and that even there are passages in the text where the Buddha is, is saying about this community or this group that they get embroiled sometimes in conflicts. That even with the aim of spiritual practice, people's speech was often not very wise and hence the need for the teachings. But even there, the teachings we get are mostly the teachings about ethical guidelines, we might say behavioral guidelines for our speech. And there's not so much about the inner process, excuse me, the inner process of speech practice. That's also interesting to me. And so I've known in my own teaching and work particularly to have speech practice be important for people who are out in the world, we've had to be quite creative to develop ways that I think are completely continuous with the spirit of developing mindfulness and wisdom and loving kindness and so forth, but that are innovative in the sense of bringing in different kinds of practices <clears throat> and connecting, as we did in this last retreat, connecting mindfulness practice with the discipline called nonviolent communication, which we interpreted as a form of mindfulness practice which directs attention to look at certain parts of your speech or look at certain experiences you're having in the midst of speech. You know, in the context of nonviolent communication, it's particularly to look at what I'm feeling when I'm speaking or hearing something and also to look, are there underlying needs in that moment? It's a kind of mindfulness practice to look in a certain direction. So there's a lot of need for creativity. And in fact, um, quite a number of Buddhist communities have also found that, you know, even monastic communities, the community Amaravati in England, uh, the monastic community led by Achan Sumedho, American-born abbot of the monastery there, they found that they did have um, sometimes conflicts and unwise speech, and they actually said, we need to train everyone in nonviolent communication at the monastery. <coughs> so, it's in, so there's a need for a lot of creativity to really say, what does it mean to take speech as practice? And I think that's especially obvious when we look to the moments in our um, talking with others, our interaction using words, when we get triggered. You know, generally speaking, when we get triggered, spiritual practice goes out the window, right? Have you noticed? <laughs> the key is for it to go out the window and come back really quickly. <laughs> That's the be best case scenario, right? But, but, um, and, and I have to say, in relation to the earlier question, uh, often spiritual practice goes out the window for a while in family context. You know, it's, some, it's usually said because um, family members, because our original buttons were installed in the context of the family, the family members know exactly where those buttons are and push them, right? So it's... Um, um, we can see when we look to moments in speech when we lose it, that it's not easy 
to employ wise speech when we get triggered. Or it's almost like we get um, jabbed or something and, and startled. And it's very hard to have wise speech in those situations. So part of the practice of wise speech, I think a big part of it, is to develop ways of more quickly coming back to center with difficult speech. That's a theme I want to explore a little ways down. But that's particularly where we can see how challenging it is to have, have wise speech. <clears throat> and yet, I, my experience is, it's really possible to have um, a sense of deep uh, presence and that a, a quality of deep presence and openness and open heart is possible in the midst of speech. My experience is that, that some of the deeper states I might experience in a retreat are accessible in an interactive context. That's not what we might originally think, right? We might think, okay, retreats, this is where I'm really, really still. But it's really the same mind, right? And it's actually possible to train as we go deeper and have levels of um, wisdom, awareness, loving kindness in the midst of speech that are um, in many ways as deep as what we find in the middle of a retreat. And we can have those, that quality of presence in speech as we practice more, as we train more. So a starting point for looking at speech, what I want to talk about the rest of the time today, is what are the, really the traditional resources that we, that we get? And this is really an unpacking of what right speech means in the context of the teachings of the Buddha. And again, it's great that they emphasize speech so much and, and that it's really named there as a part of the path. Uh, the main, this was the main emphasis of the teachings of the Buddha on speech. It was really to follow certain ethical guidelines. And one way that this was said, uh, and this is, this is uh, on the handout, is the, um, the short way that the Buddha spoke about this was to say a statement endowed with five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. It is blameless and unfaulted by knowledgeable people. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken affectionately. It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. And then in the passage above, the Buddha unpacks those qualities in a little bit different way. I have found it useful to kind of bring those together and reconstruct these ethical guidelines related to speech in four ways. First, we're asked to be truthful with our speech. Second, we're asked to be helpful with our speech. Third, we're asked to come more or less from a warm heart, from a basic attitude of friendliness, which can totally coexist with being very firm and not overly nicey-nice. That's my language, not the Buddhist. <laughs> and the last is appropriateness of speech, which includes good timing. 
You know, as, as, you, as you saw with that quotation, the Buddha actually emphasized good timing quite a lot. One can be truthful, helpful, come from a good heart, and have bad timing, and the results can be bad. <laughs> Sorry to say that. So what's interesting is that it, we're really asked to have all of these together, not just one of them. And as we look in our practice, which is what I'll ask us to do for next week, we'll find that we're stronger at some than the others. That we're, you know, when I, for example, worked with a, a group a few years ago, we worked with, on wise speech for, I think, about four months together. And um, I would have posted near my telephone these four guidelines. And I would actually, when the telephone rang, I would say to myself, it would go ring, truthful, helpful, kind, good timing, hello. <laughs> and you can do that. You know, you can, it's one of the, most, mo most of practice, I think as, as I think probably most of you know, being mindful is not difficult. Being ethical is, is not so difficult. Remembering to be mindful is quite difficult. <laughs> Remembering to be ethical is quite difficult. So almost like if we have actually awareness and the intention to go in these directions, I think that's 80 or 90% of the work, actually. You know, so sometimes when I'm at meetings, I have a piece of paper in front of me that says, truthful, helpful, kind, good timing. Right in front of me. And I just look at it. And sometimes I do a, a, like a running log of what's going on in my mind. And kind of like a mindfulness log at a meeting where I'm, you know, not always talking. And just listening a lot of the time. And I can just I make a log of what's happening in my mind. And that mindfulness, then I notice, you know, like um, um, negative thoughts about X developing. Right? <laughs> You know, and if I have mindfulness, and then I'm working with these ethical guidelines, I don't say that. I don't say that what was developing, or maybe I reframe it so it's going to come out a little more helpfully. Right? So these guidelines are wonderful. And I want to talk a little bit about each of them, and then we can, uh, I think I'm going to do a short exercise, and then we can have a, a, t a discussion together. So the first of these is about being truthful. It's about um, <clears throat> initially, of course, it means not to lie, not to tell outright falsehoods. But as we look more carefully at the guideline of truthfulness, what do we find? That it actually, probably for most of us, there may be certain moments when we notice outright lies. But the more interesting area for many of us will be what? It'll be It'll, yeah, it'll be the, the, the kind of the so-called um, the middle area, right? The gray area, sometimes it's, it's said, where we uh, find ourselves not quite being truthful, but not quite being outrightly lying. So what, it's omissions, half-truths, what else? Damning with faint praise. Damning with faint praise? <laughs> what? Yes, it might be, it might be um, having opinions masquerade as being truthful. Mm -hmm. Anyone do that? 
Okay, just three people out of 40. It's a very evolved group, either that or. The um, opinion masking is true. Um, it might be something about which I don't have much knowledge, and yet I have a very strong opinion. You know, like I know totally the truth about this situation, or or it oh, seems. <laughs> Okay, glad. Good. Thank, thank you. That's very helpful. <laughs> so, so when we when we take on this as a practice, and I'm inviting us to do this for the next week, you know, and some of you, you know, um, you know, if you if you feel called, and you know, some of you may be, for all I know, going on retreat for the next week. So, you may not be talking too much externally, but internally, it'll be the case. And um, so we can look into that. We can look into, it's like when we use these ethical guidelines, we have them guiding us so that a light bulb goes on when we're not fully truthful, when we're offering half-truth, exaggerations, omissions, and so forth. And a light bulb goes on, and we can actually look in the moment What's going on with that? What's my motivation? What's that about? Not so much from a blaming point of view, but more from a point of view of inquiry. You know, it's really, a lot of the work with speech is really just shining the light and saying what's there. It could be, what am I feeling now? Maybe I've, you know, in a difficult family context, maybe, maybe I look at my omission and maybe there's some feelings there. Maybe there's some sadness or anger or whatever. And so this is really an invitation to inquiry into, um, into how we work with truthfulness. And it's something that we can continually look at because this is always up, right? And so it's really, it's really uh, a great practice. And it's really helpful to be non-judgmental on this. When we look at our speech practice, it can be a little bit humbling. I know that the, uh, my original motivation for speech practice happened quite a long time ago. A really close friend of mine told me, Donald, you don't really um, take right speech too seriously, do you? <laughs> and then I, when I look carefully, I think it was a little different language. It was like, you know, like, you don't really use what right speech. <laughs> I was in my 20s. And I hadn't studied it that much. So um, that, but, but that the, her comment really was motivation for me to look carefully, you know, and work with it. So when we look, we have to really have like a no-blame attitude. Just see what's there. It's the same attitude we have in looking at our minds in meditation. It's really important to have that kind of no-blame attitude. And just to see what's there. And we do a kind of inventory of our speech practice. You know? And then it's really, and the whole model of meditation is that there's a natural wisdom that occurs when we look carefully and we let things settle. And naturally, we decide 
I'm not going to go there, or, or, or that's not a helpful habit, right? Here's what I do, here's a habit. Maybe I can let that go, I can experiment, not go there. A habit of mind, a habit of speech. And so we can use the moments when we are not speaking fully, truthfully, as moments of inquiry, to look more carefully. Speaking truthfully is also clearly beneficial in many ways. Partly when, we, when we're known to be truthful, it really makes um, it possible for there to be trust. That's kind of obvious, right? Lying is a problem because it disrupts trust. You know, and when, there's, um, when, there's, when we know someone is truthful, uh, there's trust. A second reason is that things are much simpler. It's way more complicated to spin a web of half-truths or lies. You know, think of a time that you may have told a lie to some people but not to others. It's very complicated to track all that, to keep, it proliferates thoughts. I mean, just think of, I don't know, what just came to mind was like Watergate with Richard Nixon. Some of you, some of us maybe, maybe uh, remember that word. Uh, <laughs> but it was, you know, there was just, you know, some original lies led to months and months of obfuscation. It was tremendous effort to actually cover up a lie. And speaking truthfully, our, our lives are much simpler. And in a way, it's very hard if, we have, if, we, if we're not truthful, it's very hard to go very deeply in meditation because our minds are be agitated, actually. <clears throat> the second guideline is about being helpful. And this is, um, start, we start to see that actually all of these guidelines are important, that just being... Uh, truthful is not enough. It's possible for me to be extremely truthful and not helpful or kind. Right? I can be truthful as a way to hurt someone. Very, and we do that sometimes. And I sometimes may take refuge in, oh, I'm being truthful. And that's why it's important to balance these different uh, uh, guidelines together. And so again, we can uh, look at what gets in the way of being helpful. When am I actually speaking with the intent to be harmful? What's there for me? You know, even as I speak, you might think, are there ways that you sometimes speak harmfully? What's going on when that occurs? What's there? Is there some kind of um, antagonism or anger or hatred? or confusion, you know, what's going on at those times. The third guideline is to speak, uh, in the text it said, with kind and loving speech, to speak with, with warmth. It said, one speaks such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving, such words as go to the heart, and are courteous, friendly, and agreeable to many. And it's particularly to look for times when our speech practice is not so kind or loving. Maybe we can, specifically, we can look at our use of sarcasm. Sarcasm is another one of these forms that can masquerade as being innocent, right? 
or someone was talking about passive-aggressive thought, right? We can look at those use of, of language or when we're actually being, being abusive, you know? And the, again, the moments of loving speech can be so powerful. Um, when I was talking a while ago to my mother about um, loving speech, and she's, she's in this group right now, so she'll, she can correct me if this story isn't quite right. Um, which she often does when I tell stories. <laughs> uh, if I exaggerate my stories, <laughs> not right speech. Um, um, so she was at a talk by actually a person who was one of my college professors named Robert Lifton, who I think is a great man who has done a lot of work with human rights as a psychiatrist and a um, um, written a lot of books and did work on uh, a lot of the, he, he wrote books on Hiroshima and he coined the phrase psychic numbing, which has kind of entered the lexicon of, of how our minds from social factors can really, and, and from certain situations, can really start to be numb. And he, he was giving a talk and there was a question and answer period. And there was a woman who answered the question. And um, she, when she started speaking, I think there was like a collective groan that came in the audience because she didn't seem to be really understanding much of the talk at all. And she was asking this question. And people were waiting for him to kind of say, that, no, that's not what I meant, you know, and maybe even be snappy. And, when I talked about why speech with my mom, 10 years after this story, that's one of the first things that came to mind because he responded with care. And he said something like, oh, I can really see how you might have thought that. You know, that's an interesting thought. You know, something, something like that. Interesting thought. And, and then he kind of weaved it around so he actually said what he really had meant without putting her down. And those moments are powerful, right? Those moments in which, especially when there's some tension or some difficulty, to come with that kind of caring speech. You know, and again, we can look at what stands in the way of my own caring speech. When am I not in my heart? It's kind of like a form of loving-kindness practice. Sylvia likes to say, what is loving-kindness practice? It's asking, where is my heart right now? Where is my heart? Am I coming out of my heart, whether I'm speaking or not speaking? And that is really what this aspect of speech practice asks us to do, and to say, where is my heart? You know, and for example, when I was working with this group and, and looking at my own speech, especially when I got busy, I would find that I almost always would be truthful and generally helpful but when I felt busy, I wasn't always as warm as I might be. That was what I learned doing that practice, that there were some that I was better at than others, you know, and some that it would really could um, give special intention to. The last guideline is about appropriateness or good timing. And this really has to do with a lot of things. It, it could have to do with looking at a difficult speech interaction and saying, what's a good time for me to talk about this. Sometimes it's wise to postpone a conversation, obviously. 
You know, but we often don't ask that question. So again, just asking these questions of am I using these four guidelines, I think if we do that, it's 80 or 90 percent of the work. And a lot of the practice is just remembering these. So, you know, for example, uh, one of my students had a teenage daughter when, I think this was when this four-month group, she put these guidelines on her hand anytime she was about to speak with her teenage daughter. And she'd be talking with her teenage daughter and looking at these guidelines, looking at truthful, helpful, you know, kind, good timing, and they say, um, I'd like to talk to you about this, <laughs> right? And she did that repeatedly over the months, and it made a huge difference to actually bring those guidelines in, in like that. So this having good timing is really, really crucial. It, um, this last guideline also has to do, in the text you'll see one of the passages, it refers to uh, gossip. You know, that's what the translation is. I think it really refers to more distracted thought, to distracted thought. You know, um, I think some aspects of gossip are simply about local news, and I don't think that's a problem. But maybe the negative aspect of gossip is that it's kind of distracted and very easily goes into untruthful, unhelpful, unkind speech, right? That's where the problem is. Or it also, I think, refers to the way that we often just have all sorts of speech through radio or TV going on all the time, so we're just flooded with information in a way that, that could be seen as distracted. Joseph Goldstein did a practice um, in which he took a vow for a week not to speak about anyone who was not present in the room. He said 90% of his speech dropped away. <laughs> so it's really to ask, what is, what is wise speech? What is distracted? What is good timing when there's, when there's a difficulty? How do I talk to myself? Do I distract myself so that I don't really look at what's important in my life? You know? <clears throat> so, what I'll invite for next week, if you, if you, how many would like to do some work on speech in the next period of time? Some of you are, some of you will not be here next week, but I, I invite you to continue with your wise speech, inner or outer. So um, what I'll do is I will continue, and I'll, I had hoped you would say that. And I will, what I also will do, we'll weave in some of the core teachings. So I'm thinking next time probably we'll work with mindfulness and wise speech and give some concrete practices for developing mindfulness in the midst of speech. In doing so, we'll also give a kind of review of the core teachings on mindfulness and also do some similar work with wisdom and loving kindness and some other, um, some other of the core teachings. So I think what I'd like to ask you to do is I'll, I'll read one quotation, and then I'll, I'll do a short reflection, and then we'll have some time to talk together. I wanted to, to end with a passage from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, a very beautiful passage on wise speech. He says, aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I am determined not to spread news 
that I do not know to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord or that can cause the family or community to break. I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. His understanding of the essence of wise speech. So I'd like just to take a few moments of silence and invite you to reflect on how, and this is just for yourself, on how you might like to develop further in your own wise speech practice and how you might particularly practice with these four guidelines of being truthful, helpful, um, kind, and having appropriateness of speech. Just take a few moments to reflect. And so the, the so-called homework, or we can call it take-home practice if homework has negative associations. <laughs> but the, the homework or take-home practice would be to really um, bring a spotlight to your speech practice in the next week, particularly use these four guidelines. And just really look at what's there and see if you can have the intention maybe each morning to just, in a, kind of in a general way and not too heavy-handed. Just look at what comes up in your everyday lives in terms of speech. Be on the lookout for anything in which, any moments in which you don't follow these one, one or more of these four guidelines. And maybe if they're particularly important speech situations, like yours, <laughs> family, set the intention before going into this the talking situation, just take a minute or two and try to be truthful, helpful, kind, and have good timing, and be open to learning about it. This isn't a total guarantee that everything will go well, just for clarity. <laughs> yeah. So I'll invite any questions or um, reflections, anything from anyone? Uh, please. Yeah. Is this going is the speech is the Dharma talk you're doing this morning going to be downloadable from uh, Dharma Seed? Yes. Good. So that we can use it for yeah. assistance during the course of the week. It should be available um, you know, tomorrow or Friday. So it should it's, it should be up there on the web. And the other thing the, the real Well that was an easy question. Yeah. That was the quick one. The real okay. question Repression have in the in the context of wise wise speech because I find that sometimes it masks a kindness and it's and it's really not mm -hmm. and I'm not sure how that how that works together but somehow it feels to me like that dovetails into mm -hmm. the context. 
Right. It's, uh, the question is about um, glossing over her repression, or we could say different ways that speech, or that we may ourselves want to make ourselves look like we're speaking kindly, but there may be either self-deception or there could be um, some unconscious material there. Um, and it's certainly something that can get disclosed as we look carefully in the practice. I think a lot of this is really about seeing more what's there. It's similar to what we might look at if we're doing loving-kindness practice. A lot of loving-kindness practice would be to see to what extent is this really genuine and to what extent is there what we call the near enemies. The near enemies, which would be, in the case of being loving, it would be a kind of possessive or needy kind of um, care or love. And, and so it's really, yeah, the invitation is really to look. That's why really the guidelines set us up to be mindful and just to see what's there. And we'll discover a lot of ways, a lot of things. That's why I say, please um, give yourself slack. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Please. intense pen and good timing. I often find what I do is I'm going to have the strong intense pen, I'm going to say whatever I have to say to somebody, and because of that I end up staying at the wrong With it Without so, such good timing. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that uh, um, I would, I would say maybe uh, number four, maybe think about it more generally as appropriateness, of which clear intention is one possible factor, but I think it's not necessarily the main one. And so, yeah, I can have really clear intention, and that can override my good sense sometimes, right? And can... Uh, um, lead me not to look at the whole issue of timing. So I think that's a great point. I really, I think I would, uh, I should redo this and maybe make it appropriateness, because I think clear intention isn't always um, <clears throat> appropriate. Yeah, thank you. Please. This is a little bit like this. I'm in groups a lot and speaking, and I mean, I'm not speaking personally, I'm listening to people speak. Yeah. And a lot of times these groups are very aggressive and speak over each other. And I am kind of mindful and all that. And then I know something needs to be said, but there's no opportunity to say it without acting the same way. Yeah. yeah. So everyone here is a question. In some context, <laughs> it's hard to get, get into a speaking situation in a group. And... There are a lot of factors that could be involved. You know, there's, there are different cultural contexts, and in some cultural contexts, um, that's just the way things are. You know, like I think, um, <clears throat> um, you know, my parents are both from New York. I think that's the way it was, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> 
I don't know if that's fair. Uh, <laughs> it's true. She, she, she says it's true, right? So, um, but I think, I think um, in a group context where not everyone shares the same norm, in a context where everyone has the same norm, um, is, is a little better. <laughs> No, what I think it depends on the context a lot, but I think you know what what um, you know like as a facilitator in a group, I would I will often say, those of you who are um, used to being really active, speaking up and so forth, be aware that some people have a different style, and have less ease in uh, speaking up, and so. It can be something that you talk about collectively at the level of the group. I mean, facilitators sometimes bring that up if it's a facilitated group. If it's a not facilitated group, you can bring it up collectively. I know a lot of groups I'm in, we, we do. We, and this actually gets at an aspect of wise speech, which, I'm, um, which has been important for me, which is are there um, group agreements within a gr workplace, an organization, a group, that can help with wise speech. And it might involve guidelines about recognizing different styles of speech and questioning you know, a, a kind of a, a group culture or a work culture, organizational culture, where the, those who are aggressive and speak quickly have the um, more speaking time and can really address that as a group issue and bring it up collectively and say, uh, you know, just because the, presumably, the intention would be to gain from the wisdom of everyone, right, or the, the understanding and, and the participation. And, and if that's not happening, that might be not reaching one of the group values. And so you, on the basis of that, you could speak up and, and just offer some suggestions. Sometimes it means being conscious that there are different styles, and people who are more used to being aggressive hold back, and those who are less aggressive speak up more readily, both in terms of style and in terms of actual number of speech opportunities and so forth. So um, that's, that's where I would go, and would go towards making it a conscious issue for the group. <clears throat> um, which you may have to be aggressive to do that. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Yeah, but that, that's, that's a good way to go. It depends on the context a lot, whether that's <clears throat> people amenable. Maybe last one. Okay. Was there anyone with a hand up? Okay, last one then. I'm Yeah. In an effort to be loving and caring and yeah. kind in my speech with them, uh, I, I think that I'm interpreted as being easy and, right. and, get, ta and get taken advantage of. Right. And right. I would really like to learn how to yeah. learn that loving. Great. <clears throat> so that's the, the question is uh, about ways that kind or loving speech can be interpreted as, we would say, soft, weak, and so forth. 
and uh, or maybe and and so probably some you know there's usually a lot to look at inside about that issue. <clears throat> but I I've been quite interested for a number of years about um, kind of the equivalent of tough love. I call it tough meta. <laughs> <laughs> Tough loving kindness. <laughs> and when you actually read the text of the Buddha, he is exceedingly firm. And we would even read some of those texts. He doesn't even appear to meet conventional notions of being nice sometimes. I mean, he's just saying, how could you think that? <laughs> you know, or whatever. And so it's, it's, um, I think it's a deep issue because um, I think there's a lot of confusion in the culture about the relationship between uh, being caring and being firm or being uh, even um, having a lot of energy in one's speech but coming from a loving place. You know, I think a lot of confusion about that. I think related sometimes to confusion about anger. And, and so I, I would really invite that as an inquiry. I mean, that's really what I'm especially inviting today, just to start looking. You know, the, my experience is to really develop in speech practice takes sustained practice, takes time. And so the invitation for next week is to really look, see what's there, take notes, right? Take notes, bring them back, bring back the reports. Um, if this resonates with you, the next few weeks is a chance to really get stronger in speech practice and to um, do so with support. And we should have those, the recording should be up there on the, um, on the website. <clears throat> so how many of you are ready to look at your speech for the next week? You don't have to be coming back, <laughs> those of you who are traveling. Uh, keep your hands up again. Okay, very good. Uh, I'm, I'm pleased. Now you weren't just being nice to me, were you? <laughs> okay. So you're being, you're, yes, it, was that why? Okay. No, no, I, I was just joking. It was, um, I, kn I know that it was uh, sincere. And so um, let's just sit uh, a little while to finish the, the morning. And I invite you to bring your intention for the next week along with any, anything that seemed particularly useful from the morning related to the talk, but it might be something that just got sparked about something else. So whatever was useful, and then sit some with your intention for the next week. So we, we finish in a traditional way with the dedication of merit, remembering that we do this practice, this inquiry, not just for ourselves, but also for others. And we offer the fruits of our time together to others through our interactions, through the rippling out into the world of our interactions and the fruits 
And more generally, we offer what's been valuable for the benefit and healing and freedom of all beings. <laughs>